Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Devin Carlson of Oklahoma University joins us to discuss his new Fordham Institute study on the outcomes of English learners who attend charter schools in Texas. Then, on the Research Minute, Amber discusses the prevalence of stackable credentials in Ohio and Colorado. All this on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. I was looking at the website before I took the job, and it was like the takedown of Reading First undercover story. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome our special guest for this week, Devin Carlson. Devin, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Mike. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, Devin is the Director of Graduate Programs in Public Administration at Oklahoma University. Uh, He's also the Associate Director for Education at the Institute for Public Policy Research and Analysis at OU. Also joining us, as always, my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. David Griffith, Director of None. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) We gave you some decent title, didn't we? Yeah, oh, Associate. That's right. Associate. Okay. Well, we have Devin here to do some shameless self-Fordham promotion uh, because Devin has just completed a fantastic new study for the Fordham Institute called Charter Schools and English Language Learners in the Lone Star State. You know, Devin, we used to try to get all cute with our titles, but uh, we've, we've been trying to play it a little more straight lately. That, that seems to do better in the era of search engine optimization and, and all. Of course, we finally figured out Google, and now we got to figure out ChatGPT instead. <laughs> it's a constant struggle. Legislators are just going to say, Chat GPT, you know, write me a, the ideal charter school policy, please. And be interesting to see what it comes up with. Someone should try that. We, maybe we should try that. All right. Well, uh, you know, the, the title gives it away what the topic is. Let's talk about it on Ed Reform Update. All right, Devin. So, again, this is focused on English learners in charter schools in Texas. Tell us this, but before we did this study, did we know much about English learners in charter schools? My understanding was that there were a handful of studies on that population, though. So lots of studies that broke out results for that subgroup. Tell us about what we knew. Yeah, I'd say there's kind of two classes of studies that we had. We had Credo's work, um, which was conducted across, you know, several states, a national study. But that focus was was never on the English learners. English learners were part of those studies, but they were never the focus. And so we didn't really get a deep dive, an in-depth exploration of, of what the EL population looked like and how they're performing in the charter schools. It was a more surface-based analysis. On the flip side, we also had some work in, in Boston, which was geographically narrow, but the study was very deep. It, it did a really, it leveraged several lotteries over a number of years to look at the effects of charter schools on a bunch of different EL outcomes, including, um, you know, categorization as as an English learner, uh, as long as they're, as well as their longer term outcomes, such as college enrollment, high school graduation, and those sorts of things. So Perito's studies were broad, but not necessarily deep. Boston study was geographically narrow, but but in much more depth. And so what we're hoping to do here, I think, is kind of bridge those two, those two sets of studies. And I'm glad you mentioned the categorization. I mean, this is the big challenge of studying English learners. It's similar to the challenge of studying special education students. You know, there is some subjectivity in terms of which kids get that label, which kids don't, or when they they lose the label, right? When they sort of graduate from no longer being an English learner, 
you know, my understanding is, you know, Credo, again, because they're going kind of broad, it wasn't able to get into all of that. And we were. And, and look, Texas, you know, place where I think, what did we find out? Something like one in six English learners in the country or one in five? One in five. One in five. Okay. A whole bunch of English learners. A huge increase in English learners in charter schools in, in recent times. And so, yeah, let's let's dig in. What What did you do and what did you find? So what we did was we took individual level data from, from Texas. Texas has a great administrative data warehouse. And we took every student ever who was ever classified as an English learner over, uh, it was about almost a 20-year period, about 15 to 20 years. And we compared them in a lot of different ways to students who were not classified as English learners. And we made that comparison accounting for, for several characteristics that are maintained in those databases. And we looked at how English learners stacked up to their traditional public schools peers in a lot of different ways in terms of their progression through the system to, to being reclassified as fully proficient. We looked at achievement outcomes, uh, high school graduation, post-secondary enrollment, earnings. And so we really took a broad approach to examining the outcomes here, looking at those shorter term outcomes, but importantly, those longer term ones as well. It is an amazing uh, study, so much in here. So, okay, so the big results... First of all, descriptively, we find that, as, as I said, lots of charter schools are serving English learners. Uh, in fact, English learners now are disproportionately enrolled in charter schools, right? That was not the case uh, when the study started way back 15 years ago. But so a big increase. As that increase has happened, we see that the English learners in charter schools look more similar to those in traditional public schools on all those characteristics, but also on English, their initial English proficiency as gauged by the English proficiency test. Right. And this is important. This is not the reading test that normal English language arts says. This is a test to see how kids with limited English proficiency are doing. And over time, those charter schools initially, the, the kids in charter schools look pretty similar to the kids in public schools recently. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. If you look back into like the 2005 time period, charter school ELs were typically entering with higher levels of, of English proficiency. And now the two sectors look very similar to one another, both in terms of uh, baseline English language proficiency as measured by the TELPIS and reading and math assessments as well. So the, 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 two, the populations in the two sectors look a lot more similar today than they did 15 years ago. All right. And we look at achievement results. And again, the results, let's face it, frankly, are, are pretty similar, right? A, a little better for charters in, in one subject, a little better for traditional public schools in the other. Yeah. Not much difference really overall. A little better in, in reading, a little worse in math. But in all in all cases, we're talking about a percentile here or there. Now, over time, those you know could accrue uh, and, and compound, but those annual differences are really pretty small. But then the big finding or the big news that I would say is something exciting for charter school supporters, I guess you'd say, is that the long-term results look very good for English learners in charter schools. Tell us about that. English learners in charter schools are more likely to graduate from high school, first off. So whether you take a student in charters versus traditional public schools in eighth grade, in 10th grade, or less or so in 12th grade, you look at each of those three grade levels and, and students in ELs and charter schools are more likely to graduate high school. Where you see big differences are in any post-secondary enrollment. Charter schools do ELs and charter schools are much more likely to have enrolled in a, a, any post-secondary education. And that difference is driven by an increased probability enrolling in four-year schools. 
there's really no difference in the probability of enrolling in two-year schools, but four-year college, there's a pretty large difference in the likelihood of, of enrollment um, between charter school students and their peers in the traditional public schools. And then that ends up resulting in higher earnings for those charter school students as well, right? It does in the long term. You know, during the during the years where you see that increased college enrollment, you have a, uh, as you'd expect slightly lower earnings. But after you take four or five, six years into the future, the earnings for charter school students start to exceed those of their of their public school peers by anywhere from one to two thousand dollars a year on average. It strikes me, tell me if this is wrong, uh, either you or David, that we've seen this in other studies, right? That uh, the charter schools seem to have this particularly strong impact on college going and college attainment uh, in, in some other studies as well. And and look, I mean, these are schools that largely advertise themselves as college prep charter schools. Uh, a lot of times have this culture that we believe everybody uh, can make it to and through college. I mean, Maybe there's been some shift in that in recent years, but, you know, back when these kids were going through these schools, you know, that was certainly the ethos. It seems to be working. I mean, it could be the school culture. It could be what they're doing instructionally. I'm waiting for the tweet from Pat Wolf. He will surely point out to me, oh, look, Mike, here it is again. Another study that shows uh, different results on student achievement than on long-term outcomes. See, so look at that interesting disconnect. Uh, David, what, how do you make sense of all that? That's a fair point that you made about Pat's tweet. I don't make sense of it because there's just too much that we don't know, to be totally honest with you. Something is clearly going on, and I think school culture is also where my head goes. To be honest, that's kind of a punt, right? Like you say school culture, like it means something. And (laughs) it's hard to think of anything more complex and hard to pin down and multifaceted than than school culture. I think that there are sort of a, a combination of things are coming together in charters. You have parents you have teachers, you have students, you have sort of an institutional culture that is combining to produce, we'll call it a college-going culture. And, you know, in this case, I also just wonder, right, because, you know, we did see this mild difference between English and math, and English is really important for college, right? I mean, it's really important. And we even had a couple of the practitioners that we talked to articulate this, that, you know, like, you really need English if you're going to go to um, to college. And so, Um, I do sort of wonder whether charters are taking a more English forward approach and really pushing the sort of notion that, you know, we need to get them to college level English, you know, the sooner the better academic English as sort of the the first priority of the school. Um, I I couldn't really pin that down in in, in the study, but I think there are sort of hints of that. You know, I should say that David led a piece of the study that that did some focus groups or some interviews, some interviews. Yeah, we're calling them interviews. Yes, interviews that with some uh, educators and you know trying to gauge the uh, you know if there are any subtle differences between these two sectors in terms of how folks approach it. You start peeling the onion here, and there's of course this big debate on how to best teach uh, kids with in- limited English proficiency how to teach them English, and is it to you know the sink or swim immerse- immersion you know just as much as possible. Is it more of a bilingual education approach where they're more gradually learning English while they keep learning other subjects? I'm going to punt hard on that, Mike. I will say this, though. I mean, what was interesting, what came through was that there is a little bit of a disconnect or tension between what parents are asking for and what the research and, and practitioner community thinks works, right? So if you if you look at the at the, the research on this, you know, it's almost universally saying you need some sort of dual immersion program, right, to get the strongest results. 
for you know listeners who don't know that in its purest form means that you kind of put English and Spanish or whatever the other language is on equal footing. And you may teach some classes fully in English and some fully in Spanish. And you may have, you know, half the school may be English native speakers and half the school may be Spanish speakers. I mean, it has a lot of components, but it's it's a less English intensive approach that the research supports. But what came through in the interviews was not that, especially on the charter side. I mean, what came through, but really on both sides, we, we did talk to folks in both sectors. And what really came through over and over again was the parents really want the English. They understand that it's the language, uh, you know, of the business class in America, you know, like it or not, it just is. And so they are not looking for some fancy suburban dual immersion, you know, school. They are looking for someone to teach their kid English so that their kid can get a job. And I, I think that also deserves respect, right? I and mean, there may be some sort of earthy wisdom there that we shouldn't discount. But, and what you're saying is, and possibly those charter schools that are responding to parental demand end up doing a better job getting their kids out of limited English proficiency quicker, maybe do a better job with reading, and maybe there's some there, there's some downsides on the math. Now, again, we don't want to over-interpret this because, as Devin said, these differences are quite small. Yeah, and there is a lot happening here. You can imagine spillovers from one subject to the other. You can There are major issues in both sectors, frankly, with staffing. There's a 20-year shortage of bilingual staff. So it, it almost misses the point to say, well, you should make create more dual immersion or n- more bilingual programs. Well, they almost everyone would love to it, when you, if you actually talk to people, but you just can't come up with enough folks who speak fluent Spanish to, to actually do it. It's hard to say, you know, to tease it out entirely, but there's a lot of sort of intriguing leads that, that point in some interesting directions. So Devin, what, what do you think? What advice would you give to policymakers uh, now that we've got a, another piece in the puzzle here on English learners in charter schools? It's a good question, Mike. I think it's really hard, like David said, to pull out the mechanisms here. Looking at the ultimate outcomes, it's pretty clear that charter schools are, are have, have a pretty solid track record in, in graduating English learners, in putting them in four-year colleges and helping them to get to four-year colleges. And even on the earnings side, it's tough to know exactly what the practices and policies were that resulted in these differences in outcomes. My recommendation would be to let charter keep letting charter schools do what they've been doing, keep track of these outcomes, keep looking at them and seeing how they how they progress. I think that this study did a really nice job of raising questions about, all right, what's actually happening? What's driving at the ground level these differences that we're seeing in, in the longer term outcomes? You did well, Devin, as a researcher to basically say what we need is more research. That's good. <laughs> That's good. That's right. Yep. All right. Hey, thanks so much, Devin, for a great job on the study and for joining us today. So again, Devin Carlson at Oklahoma University. Look forward to working with you again sometime soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Mike. Great. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. Super cool study Devin did for us there on ELs in charter schools in Texas. Yes, he did. Needed to know more. Now we do. You know, if you ever go back, listeners, to what uh, some of the Fordham Institute research was like before Amber came here, uh, what, 15 years ago? So we were not doing these sorts of sophisticated studies uh, with sophisticated analyses. Well, I appreciate that, Mike. I remember the, what, I was looking at the website before I took the job, to be honest, and it was like the takedown of reading first, undercover stories. 
Oh, that was complete with a video. I did a whole rally. Yeah. I think you yeah. camped out at, at it to do your investigative reporting to find out why it was going on. And I thought, oh boy, okay. <laughs> we needed you, Amber. We needed you. <laughs> Good uh, stuff. Good stuff. All right. What you got for us this week? We have a new study out from RAND and the University of Michigan. You know, it's not uber duper uh, empirical, um, but it's mixed method. It's a little bit more on the qualitative side, but I, I thought it was interesting because it kind of digs into how we can make these stackable credentials work better, which I think is what we actually need to know. Uh, they're wor working in Ohio and Colorado. They're determining if and how these stackable credentials are being utilized by low-income populations in particular in ways to make stackable credentialing more equitable for all students. Again, mostly descriptives describes a sample of students who received initial certificates at public community colleges and tech centers. That's where they had the best data and includes, again, in-depth qualitative interviews from 20 different organizations in the states, included community college folk, technical centers, four-year university staff, state-level agencies, and so on, to inform the recommendations on how to make, again, stackable credentials work better. I assume this is kind of silly, but they kept saying stackable credentials are multiple, so I assume that just meant more than one, but I never did actually find what that multiple meant. Anyhow, uh, they were not able to observe all credentials that students earned, particularly non-credit credentials in Colorado, nor were they able to determine which credentials were intended to be stacked. They don't know whether they were intended, uh, but they did have enrollment, credential attainment, and match records from the National Student Clearinghouse and the respective states so they could track post-secondary enrollment wages and unemployment insurance data. They also looked at whether they were vertically stacked as in a sequence or horizontally stacked, which means in a bunch of different fields. Uh, they analyzed students who had earned their first ever short or long credit certificate. So short means you earn it in six months or less, maybe around 12 credit hours or fewer. Long means more than six months and more than 12 credit hours. Uh, from one of 13 Colorado community colleges or one of 23 Ohio community colleges from July 2006 through July 2015, they took out the kids who were duly enrolled in high school. Uh, low income, below 200% of the federal poverty level, and then I think they clumped middle and high income together if their wages were at or above 200% of the federal poverty level. Ooh, descriptive findings. Number one, the ratings of stacking range from 22 to 63% across both states. Institutions with low rates of stacking did not disproportionately serve more low-income students. Low-income certificate earners tended to earn multiple credentials and went on to earn longer-term credentials at higher rates than did middle and high-income certificate earners. And then the low income were more likely to vertically stack. If they vertically stack versus this kind of, you know, credentials all over the place, they were able to narrow the earnings gap between low income and middle and high income individuals substantively, which I actually could not find the exact statistic. That changed, obviously, more or less based on the field. So if you were in IT, manufacturing and engineering technology, mechanics or nursing, you had the highest returns uh, in those fields. Certificate earners uh, overall in both states were largely white, 67 to 79% of them, but greater percentages of low-income certificate uh, earners in both states identified as Asian, Black, African-American, and Hispanic. 
Finally, women were disproportionately represented among low-income certificate earners in Colorado, while men were disproportionately represented in Ohio. And it was pretty flipped. Maybe our Ohio team would have a better idea of what were those more popular areas for men or women in, uh, in Ohio. Anyway, finally, interview data, several factors that limited stacking opportunities in general. And this was sort of some things we've heard in our own research, limited opportunities to stack in some fields, suggesting that the industries need to better coordinate on how that might occur. Like, you know, we don't know how to stack in some of these areas. Uh, I think education was one they bring up a lot. Limited opportunities to stack in some institutions. Uh, they just found that some of these institutions weren't doing this at all. They just weren't av available equally uh, at the institution level. Insufficient information and resources to stack. So you had in some uh, community colleges, no in-house expertise. Could be expensive to buy some of the machinery and resources needed in some of these fields. So they just weren't doing it. And the need to move from non-credit to credit programs. Again, some of these kids were getting non-credit programs, but they weren't helping them at all on the credit front. So they feel like these non-credit credit programs need a little bit more alignment, cohesion, whatever you want to call it, uh, between them. That's what I've got. I'm going to need someone to give me a clear definition of stack. David, I looked. <laughs> I think it means that, you know, one degree builds on the previous degree. It, the skill sets are supposed to build on each other so that you um, have higher earning potential within a field. But that's what vertically stacking is. But then you also mentioned horizontal stacking. Which is sort of like the same thing as CTE in high school, right? You can, you can concentrate, but you can concentrate taking three courses in one field, or you can take three courses in three different fields. So similar to that idea where kids or students aren't diving deep in one area. It does make it sound like horizontal stacking is a bit of an oxymoron. It sounds largely rhetorical. I got to be honest. Right. Can you stack across and sit down? Uh, yeah. I kept picturing a student with his literal diplomas and certificates physically stacking them and then, you know, not getting anywhere. But I digress. I mean, maybe a better way to say it, if we're talking about vertical, is it's helpful to have fields where there's some kind of career ladder. And nursing is one of those areas, and, and the medical field in particular, right, where we know a lot of these big hospital centers are very good at getting people to come in at, you know, relatively low-skilled starting jobs and then giving them more opportunities for training and development and advancement, right? And they work their way up the ladder, uh, you know, and as, as they go. And that, you know, it would be great if some of the other fields had that as well. And we talk about that in education, right? I mean, we do talk about, uh, you know, grow your own programs that have the teacher aid, have a pathway where they can go get their teaching certificate and their bachelor's degree and all of that. And, and that would be a model for that. We just don't do it very much or very well. And the advantage of stacking as opposed to just smushing it all together and having one really thick piece of paper, I, I can only assume that, you know, some of these degrees take too long to get the degree, right? Or it would be too expensive or something. Right. So right. It's an opportunity cost. You're right? kind of, you're lower, but you're like, you're lowering the risk from the standpoint of, of whoever's earning the degree, right? Is, is that the underlying rationale? Yeah, and the credential. Here? You really shouldn't say degree, right? It's yeah. Okay. Credential. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's impossible to be against that, I think. I mean, in some ways, it speaks to the whole problem with post-secondary, right? Which is we have this inexplicable fixation with being in a place for four years, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe it's 
slicing. Maybe what we really need to do is slice the the four year degree. And mm -hmm. and so I don't know. So you can just get off at, at when you're done, right? Right. It's supposed to be talking about on ramps and off ramps, right? And and if you do an on ramp and you want to work for two years and then you want to get back on the ramp, then you should be able to. And of course, this intersects with mastery-based learning, you know, say, hey, we shouldn't be about seat time. It should be about showing what you know. Uh, you know, then OSHA, we used to talk about badges as another way of talking about some of these things, right? I mean, right, we want to unbundle the, the, say, the bachelor's degree so that some of these jobs, they can stop advertising that you must have a bachelor's degree and instead say, here are the skills we actually need. And we don't want to use that bachelor degree, you know, as as that. Though, you know, the more I learn about this, there's also this thing that I, you know, this this court case back in the late 60s, early 70s, I think, that was related to employment discrimination that basically said that employers are not allowed to use, to, to give standardized tests and to use that in their uh, employment decisions. And so, you know, they decide to use bachelor's degree as a proxy if they're looking for people with a certain level of cognitive ability, Right. Were the Supreme Court to undo that decision, you know, maybe again, that would be a way to encourage employers to look less for credentials and look more for demonstrated skills. And don't we see a couple of states? I feel like we talked about this in a prior podcast where some states are not requiring, you know, a bachelor's degree in some of the applications to. Yeah. Yeah. For state jobs. Yeah. Right. I heard you quote some numbers in there and there were a lot of numbers, to be honest. But I mean, is the goal that all certificates are stackable? I mean, are we are we trying to get to 100% here? I mean, I heard like 20%, 60%. We don't really yeah. know. It sounded like a mess, but I guess I'm also just wondering, I mean, what is a reasonable number to expect here when we're talking about stacking? I mean, I'm of the opinion that some of these fields don't stack well. You know, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, we keep seeing, you know, manufacturing, technology, mechanics, nursing, offers the highest returns, but it's also the ones that are, that are, you know, people have sat down and figured out how skills stack <laughs> and how you work your way up the ladder. And in right. so many other fields, we just haven't sat down and figured that out. And in some cases, I don't know, like, does education really stack? I mean, I guess in positions it does, but does it in skill sets? Maybe that's the, the root of my skepticism, right? Is I mean, is it really because no one's ever tried or is it because in some of these fields, you just can't say, I don't know, I'm, I don't know, hang gliding one, hang gliding two, hang gliding three. Yeah, I mean, you you either know the content to teach social studies or you or you don't, right? I don't know. I guess that's I'm with you, David. I'm just kind of struggling with how some fields would stack. Well, I think we're struggling to come up with the right example, but I I, I do just kind of wonder, you know, I always wonder this, right? Is it is it really because you know nobody's bothered to do it, or is it because when you get down to it, usually if the problem were easily solved, someone would have done it by now. So right. I can only assume that in some of these fields, the problem isn't so easily solved as, as much as, as, as stackable stackability sounds appealing. Sounds good. As a I universal. I agree. It's right up there with snackability uh, in my book. Ooh, yeah. I like that one. All right. Hey, guys, that is all the time that we have got. Uh, but thank you, Amber. That was that's an important one. And it's look, it, it does. In my mind, it's OK. Not every study needs to be a gold standard uh, <laughs> empirical study. We yes. also just need to figure stuff out sometimes. Yes. Good. Well, that is all the time we've got for this week's show. Until next week, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.